You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. On March 11, 1977, famed director Roman Polanski was arrested in Los Angeles and charged with furnishing a controlled substance to a minor, committing a lewd and lascivious act on a child, unlawful sexual intercourse, rape by use of drugs, perversion, and sodomy. Less than a year later, Polanski drove to LAX, bought a one-way ticket to Europe, and never came back. In her new documentary, Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired, our guest today, Marina Zenovich, examines the public scandal and private tragedy which led to Polanski's sudden flight from the U.S. Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired, won the Documentary Film Editing Award and was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. Marina Zenovich, welcome to Film School. Thank you. How are you today? I'm good. Where did we reach you? Where are you standing right now? Oh, I'm sitting, actually, in my office in Los Angeles. Oh, very good. <laughs> so I was, I was going to ask what the weather is like, but, you know, I, well, we know. I, I know that already. <laughs> it's very hot. I actually just did a short film on David Lynch, and he does the weather report, and I, I oh, had really? to include that because he does the weather report every day on his website. Oh, he does? Oh, excellent. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I, it's hilarious. Every day. I mean, as if the weather changes in Los Angeles, but he does it wherever he is. Well, it's like, like the dog that never starts barking, I guess. It's, it's, like, exactly. it's like that comic strip. Yeah. How did that go with Lynch? I'm just kind of curious. You're doing a short film on him, and who's it for? Oh, it's for an arts channel called Gallery HD. You know, what a lot of people don't know is that he's a painter. And so we went to Italy. Uh, he had a show in Paris, and then it went to Milan. And we filmed him installing the show. So it just focuses on him as a painter. I do these short profiles of artists, and they play at film festivals, and they're on, I think they're on Dish on Gallery HD. That's kind of my day job. Well, let me, I'm just, I don't fun. want to dwell too much on David Lynch, but he's a, <laughs> he's a notoriously reclusive and tough interview. Uh, did, was there any, did he have any trepidations about this? You know, he gave us an interview, and it, he's very accessible when he's talking to you. Filming David Lynch and filming Julian Schnabel are two different things. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, <laughs> Julian will let you follow him wherever, and that's really a great pleasure when you're filming. But sometimes when you film someone who doesn't give you as much access, you're limited, but sometimes it makes the show better. Yeah. It all worked out. I think it's a good show. Well, good Excellent. for you. Now, now to Roman Polanski. Yes. <laughs> how, how is it that you first uh, decided to get into this project? What was, what was the impetus behind it? Well, I was looking for something to do. I kind of find myself doing these three- to four-year passion projects. And after my last one, I was having a hard time finding something. And I happened to be in Los Angeles in February of 2003 when there was an article in the Los Angeles Times written by Bob Baker talking about would Polanski be nominated for the pianist, would he be able to come back, and kind of revisiting the case. I read the article and I thought, oh, I remember that story. This is kind of interesting, and I, I clocked it. And then he ended up getting nominated, and Samantha Geimer, the girl from the case, ended up writing an op-ed piece saying, you know, judge the film, not the man. She went on the Larry King show with her lawyer, and it was what her lawyer said that really made me decide to make the documentary. He said, the day Roman Polanski fled 
was a sad day for the American judicial system. A sad day. Like, that just didn't make sense to me. So I just started calling people, investigating. And it turned out that I knew someone who knew the DA in the case. He was a bishop at my friend's church because they're both Mormons. Mormons. So I had an instant in, you know, it's not like he was dying to talk to me, but at least we had someone in common. And with a story that's so sensational, it's not like people are dying to talk. (laughs) They don't want to because the story has been told so many times in such a salacious way. Was up to me to kind of find everyone and tell them this is going to be a different story. You know, this is going to be a fair story that doesn't belong on Fox TV. Now, the Mormon is is Roger Gunson. Am I right? The yes. uh, the prosecutor for P- the Polanski case. He, he seems very willing to talk all the way through. In fact, he's pretty much on almost on Polanski's side through this. I would say, even though he prosecuted them. Did he have any trepidation in getting involved in this documentary? Oh, it took a long time to get him to agree. And we met several times. We used to have lunch in Santa Monica and just kind of check each other out for about a year. And I didn't know if I was going to get him or not. When I finally got him to do the interview, um, what you see is good editing. I mean, it was difficult to get him to talk. Once he sat down, I had him as my first interview. Actually, it was my second interview. His boss was my first interview. When I sat down with Roger, I thought my, my plan was I'll get all this information from him. And he, yes, he gave me information, but I don't normally do documentaries that feature lawyers. Yeah. They're, um, <laughs> they don't give a lot of information. So it was trying to get him to tell me as much as he could, which, you know, I got as as much as I could, and it, it ended up working. When you, when you say information, were you, you're talking about sort of uh, to lay out the case or to, to, to give the DA's perspective on it? Were you looking for him to tell you, tell us, the, the viewer, the story? Well, or, when you're interviewing someone about something like this, you want them to start at the beginning and explain the whole thing. Okay. But I was more interested in, I needed those facts from him. Right. But I needed to know what the film kind of ended up being about, which is what happened behind the scene with Judge Rittenband and the two lawyers. It wasn't until I interviewed Polanski's lawyer, Doug Dalton, which took place two years, two and a half years later. Mm, um, He didn't want to talk to me initially. He's never talked to anyone. I had these two stories, and what was interesting is, is having them told so far apart, but then trying to meld them together, and they were basically saying the same thing, which is the story of the film, which is the story that a lot of people don't know. Were you a fan of Polanski? Of course. I mean, I don't think any film lover cannot be. Just to give some background, you have Roman Polanski, it is the height of his career, Rosemary's Baby, he's getting introduced to American audiences, then the tragedy of, of his wife being massacred by the Manson family. You have all that background in here, and it's a great job of of moving through that without focusing in on it too much, because with Polanski, I think people pretty much focus on that case and the death of his wife rather than too much else. Did you spend a lot of time figuring out how are you going to uh, maneuver through that period? Well, I knew I wanted to have it in the film. I didn't want it to take over the film. And I didn't want Manson in the film, and I didn't want 
his name mentioned. Yeah, I, I noticed. I was after I saw it. I thought to myself, I don't think you even mentioned his name, which is yeah. I yeah. mean, I didn't want to give him any more publicity. Yeah. Um, so let's stop right now. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, other yeah. than to say so that this, uh, I knew. I mean, you know, when I got the idea to make the movie, I, I had read Roman Polanski's autobiography, and I. I had read it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and I had a copy. And when I decided to make the film, I started at the case, and I didn't go back to the beginning. And then as I read through that, I thought, oh, you know, you have to go backwards. With Roman Polanski, you always have to go back in time to understand the rest. At least that's how I see it. We're a product of kind of what happens to us. It's in no way sympathizing for him. It's just explaining his story. Um, I've mentioned this a lot, the hope in his life. That was something I never knew he had. We're always with Roman Polanski. It's about the killing of his wife. It's about that he fled, that he raped a girl and fled the country. Yeah. You know, it's, it's never really anything else. And I wanted to try to fill in the blanks about how he got to that place. Yeah. We're speaking with Marina Senovich, and the film is uh, Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired. It's a documentary. It's, uh, Nathan mentioned earlier it was one of the finalists at the Sundance Film Festival, and it's in theatrical release right now, uh, and we'll be talking a little bit about that later on. I'm going to go back a little further in, in Roman Polanski's life, and you touch on this, and what happened to him and his parents, his parents, his upbringing in the earliest years of his life and the impact it had. Well, his mother was killed in the Holocaust. He was separated from his father when he was, I think, eight. He spent a lot of his youth by himself without his parents. He was reunited with his dad, but then I think his dad shortly thereafter got remarried. He spent a lot of his youth alone, but was living with his father in his early teens. Ended up going to the Wooj Film School. He, he started out as an actor and then was a filmmaker and, you know, had an incredible amount of talent. And I think just from everyone I've interviewed, just a, a force of a personality, even from a young age, almost to the point of being obnoxious. I mean, probably just the survivor instinct that kicked in so young and started making films, you know, made his way to Hollywood just based on um, sheer force of talent and personality. Mm-hmm. Do we get a, a window into Roman Polanski from his scene in Chinatown when he uh, when he cuts uh, Jack Nicholson? Is that the kind of personality you're talking about, sort of a... You know, very willful, very evil dwarf. Uh, no, I just, I mean, I mean, the way he in that scene, he is, uh, he's a very determined uh, uh, character in that scene. Is is that ruthless? Ruthless. Thank you. That's the word I may be looking for. Is that? I don't, I don't know if I'd call him ruthless. Perhaps in having to survive, you yeah. you have to be ruthless. I put that scene in the movie. We have different scenes from his movies or movies he's acted in just to show him throughout the film. I mean, I don't I don't really look yeah. at that scene and say, oh, that's him. Okay. Yeah. I always looked at it as a bit of humor myself. Exactly. Here's I mean, the we director. Really, the editor, Joe Beanie, and I were really trying to, um, in telling this very dry story about the case, trying to add as much humor and kind of irony as possible in telling all the different layers, like, for example, that... You know, the judge had a couple of girlfriends, and one of them was younger, was 20 when she met him, and he was 54. I mean, that in no way compares to what Roman Polanski did, but just the levels of irony, the levels of everyone wanting to be a star. The girl in the case, you know, Polanski wanted to be in Hollywood. The judge wanted to be photographed. The mother of uh, the young girl wanted to be 
in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of that going. I want to get back to the case a little bit. I thought that his uh, attorney uh, Dalton was a very able uh, advocate. Seemed a very very sharp guy, and seemed to really be able to uh, to bring a good light to Roman's side of this issue to this case. It was very hard to get him to talk, but once he did, he was amazing. I mean, he said some real things that stick with me, like, this case will never leave me, for reasons that a lot of people don't know. I mean, that's the beauty to me of what's happened with this film, is when people come up to me and say, you know, I thought I knew the story, but I didn't. It's like, why has the story never been told? Everybody, I think, just focuses on the fact that Roman fled, and that it was a case of a sexual nature, and this part of the story just gets lost. Yeah. What we didn't know prior to this film, at least I did not know, was just how much of an impact the judge in this case uh, had on justice. I mean, on a perversion of justice. On injustice. (laughs) There is a particular point in the film in which the judge is about to impose, imposes something that, according to Dalton and other legal experts, is illegal. A judge cannot do, but he did it. He he imposed it anyway. Well, he had no commission on judicial performance that was looking over his shoulder the way we do now, even though I think today I don't follow it a lot, but I think people are sometimes complaining about judges. But Judge Rittenband was highly regarded, had uh, a big personality, and didn't really have to answer to anyone. It was the 70s. It's like that's, you know, you really have to put this in context. Um, with regards to the freedom with which he thought he could do things in the courtroom, it's quite different. Yeah. Well, he was literally telling Douglas Dalton, the attorney for Polanski, and Roger Gunson, the prosecutor, uh, he was instructing them how to act. He was essentially being a director and giving them instructions on what they were supposed to do in order for the judge to look good. It was quite shocking when I heard that. I really like, you know, a theory I had in making the film was that, you know, Roman Polanski is stuck in a movie directed by Judge Lawrence Rittenband. Yeah. <laughs> because it is so Kafka-esque, and it's so ironic that it would be someone like Polanski caught in this kind of web. Yes, he got himself into the mess in the first place. That goes without saying. But... He did go through the system. Mm -hmm. He did do everything he was supposed to do. And he was told that his time at Chino would be, you know, his time. And that was it. Yeah, he was instructed that uh, he made a deal to uh, spend 90 days at Chino to be observed, to be sure that this wasn't a uh, something that would occur again in his life, I suppose, is one of the things they were looking for. And yet after he served enough time for them to make a decision on that, the judge decided, well, that wasn't good enough. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. There were two probation reports that said he was not a mentally disordered sex offender, uh, MDSO, but Rittenband wanted to send him to Chino anyway for something called a 90-day diagnostic. And some people, you know, I asked a lot of people, some people said, you know, some people got out after... 80 days. Some people were in there for 110 days. I mean, it's not like it was definitely 90 days. It was how long it took for you to get through the system. And the great irony was that I think the Chino officials wanted to get rid of Polanski because they didn't want anything to happen to him because he was a celebrity. So they rushed it through, which, you know, angered the judge and he didn't want to look bad. It's such a juicy story. I had no idea when I kind of stumbled across this comment by Samantha's lawyer, Lawrence Silver, 
what I would kind of discover. And it's been so rewarding to have people just say, I, I just, I had no idea all this stuff happened. Because everyone thinks they're an expert on this story. If you go mm-hmm. online, I mean, my God, everyone is an expert on this story. Yeah. And they're not. And that's what I like about Samantha Geimer. It's her story. No one really has the right to talk about it. It's like, it's hers. It happened to her. And she just wants everyone to just get over it. It's a juicy story, but there's some juicy archival footage that you got hold of, too. And you did a, a wonderful job in presenting it. It's it, You don't rely necessarily on, on the newsiness of it as much as just putting the images in front of us and letting us decide and picking the best images. Was it difficult getting hold of all that stuff? or was It, it was, was very hard. I had uh, a great, um, my associate producer is a great researcher. Her name's Michelle Sullivan. And she knows exactly where to go to get stuff. What was heartbreaking was that a lot of this stuff from the 70s was uh, either thrown away uh, or lost. So, you know, we ended up only having two pieces of video for Judge Rittenband. Yeah. Um, but we called everyone, and I, I love archive. I mean, we were calling archive houses in France and Italy and Germany, and just to find things that we haven't in England, just to find things that we haven't seen before. And a lot of the best archival footage, including like Polanski arriving at Chino, yeah. was from NBC. We had been working on the project for so long, actually five years in total, and Kevin Bianchi, the head of NBC News Archive, was talking to Michelle about another job. And he said, hey, are those girls still working on that Polanski documentary? Because we found a bunch of stuff in the vault. Wow. Mm-hmm. And she said, yeah. So she called me, and my producer said, no more ar- archival footage. You've spent too much money on <laughs> archival footage. Yeah. And I just said, please, I'm just a junkie for archive because <laughs> it just, you know, it creates your, your movie for you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's almost like a verite film set in the 70s, yeah. like we were there. And I saw the archive, and I just said, I have to have this. Yeah. And it, it changed the movie. I mean, yeah. we were able to just kind of let it breathe. There's wonderful archival footage, the local uh, newscasters uh-huh. and the people on the scene. There were people there that I <laughs> I haven't seen since that period of time. There's the Purnell Chapman. Is it Purnell or I Purnell? I think he's still on the air, oh, Purnell really? Chapman. But we were having a screening in L.A. and I invited him, but I never heard back. I, someone told me he's still on the air. Uh-huh. And Laurel Erickson. Laurel Erickson. Yeah. Laurel Erickson is the one who asked the question um, when Polanski's allowed to travel to Europe. She asks, are you going to come back? Oh, Which yeah? At that point, she, she saved that piece of tape. That's she, wonderful. She got that out of her garage for me. She saved it huh. because she was a young reporter, and she said that people just looked at her like she was nuts. She asked this question that ended up being you yeah. know, so relevant when he did flee later. Yeah, well, I think he says, well, of course not. And he's smiling. Not, and and exactly. I don't I don't think he had any intention at that point at all. It was, well, he does come back after that, yeah. but then he flees. But it was just funny. It's these things you do when you're young and we, you don't know what you're doing that end up being like, you know, just the naiv- naivete takes you to the right questions. We're speaking with Marina Zenovich, yeah. and the film is uh, Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired. Has Roman Polanski seen the film? Yeah, he saw it a couple months ago. And? Uh, I, I think he's, you know, as happy as he can be with it. I mean, it brings up um, a lot of difficult things that he's gone through in his life. He was complimentary about it and was very, very kind about it. I tried to interview him at the end. I couldn't stop myself from asking, even though I knew that I didn't need him in the film. And actually, when I went to go do the David Lynch job in Italy, I stopped in Paris and was hoping to interview Roman. And he told me um, he just thought it would look like self-promotion if he was in the film. 
so I uh, I met him anyway, and I, I think as a filmmaker, he appreciated the amount of work I had put into the film and wanted to meet me just to thank me. I mean, this is really, it's a story that hasn't been told, and yeah. I'm happy that I was able to put it out there. Well, it's much more than just about Roman Polanski. It's about the Southern California area at a particular point in time. It's about the judicial system here. It's about the relationship between the press and, and fame and, and their obsessiveness about it, too. Do you, do you think that the press has changed any? Since the Polanski trial, has it gotten worse? Well, I think it's gotten worse mm. with digital phones and digital cameras and everything. You can just get the news out there, you know, TMZ and all that stuff. I mean, I don't, I don't follow it, so it, it, I, I think it's, it's really gotten a lot, a lot worse. I mean, yeah. it's funny. Someone asked me, was I trying to humanize Roman Polanski? And it's like, well, he's... He seemed very human to me. I wasn't trying to humanize him. Yeah. And it was interesting because I drew the parallel with Britney Spears. Like, I don't see her as being human. <laughs> and isn't that awful? Well, that but makes everything two of us, that we huh? see doesn't seem that. I mean, the yeah. only time she seemed really human was when she was really struggling. Yeah. And it's tragic that these people have to live this way, that they're, that they're hounded, you know. Yeah. But we yeah. live in a society that is just kind of obsessed with celebrity. Well, it's a, it's a very voyeuristic society that we live in now, and the film is uh, in theatrical release around the country. I understand it's in New York now, and coming to L.A.? Yes, it starts playing Friday, July 18th, this Friday, at the Sunset Lemley 5. Oh, excellent. Well, that's great news. Get all it's, you OC people to drive up here. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, and maybe, it's more than this story. There's so much going on in this film. It's tragedy, and it's a love story. There's a beautiful scene with uh, Roman Polanski, and Sharon Tate, at the very beginning, she's getting her hair done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. where, where is that? Uh, you know, I don't know where it is, but we got it from an archive house. You can direct anything better than oh, that. Oh, my God, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And my composer, Mark Degliantoni, just wrote such a haunting score. Yeah, yeah. I, people tell me they cry when they see that scene. It, yeah. It's a beautiful scene. It really yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, it's great to just kind of show what they had. We always yeah. see Sharon Tate... She's never alive, right. you know. She's always dead or being killed. And my God, it was great to be able to show her, but not focus on it. You know, wow. it's not what the film is about, but it is part of his life. And, and just to, to to understand, to recount the depth of this tragedy that occurred to her, being eight months pregnant, and all the things, of the horror and the surrounding circus that took place. And then to deal with all of those things and maintain your a level of dignity that Roman Polanski did during that period of time yeah, is pretty he remarkable. Was, he was a hero through the whole thing, really I, I believe. Well, wow. Marina Sinovich, thank you so much. The, the film is Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired. Thank you for being here on Film thank School. Thank you. It was great. To learn more about Film School... Listen to more interviews or subscribe to our podcast. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool. <laughs>